is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel the Host, coming to you from the ARN Studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Friday, December 8th, 2023. We are, the first week of Advent is drawing to a close. The second week of Advent starts Sunday as we continue to work towards Christmas. Um, uh, saw a great video put out by uh, Dr. Scott Annual, um, who's with uh, G3 in Atlanta. And um, Scott put out a, a uh, video on should Christians celebrate Advent. And it was an excellent video. I shared it on Twitter. I think I shared it on Facebook as well. Um, when we're done with the show, I'll reshare those tweets. Because um, it's worth your time. It's not a long video. I think it's maybe 10 minutes. But talking about, you know, it's not Christmas yet. Um, I mentioned that, I think on Monday I read that uh, series of of tweets that uh, Matt Kennedy put out in New York about the somber, the somberness of Advent. Um, because there is a lot to think about that is that is somber as we prepare for Christmas. And one of the things that the Dr. Annual pointed out is for for hundreds of years, going back at least to the late second, early first or th- early third century, the Christian church has been celebrating Advent. And the season, the four weeks prior to Christmas Day, were all involved with somber reflection. The celebration was the 12 days of Christmas, which is not (laughs) the 12 days before Christmas. The first day of the 12 days of Christmas is Christmas Day. Um, And so you would have the the build-up to Christmas was not the celebration. We think of this time of year as when all the Christmas parties and stuff are, and once Christmas Day hits, it's over. And uh, Dr. Annual points out that that has much more to do with American consumerism and marketing and advertising than it does with actual religious reflection and church tradition. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, it was one of those things, you know, I knew, but having him point that out, it was just like, yeah, you know, maybe we should be more deliberate in our thinking about Advent and the coming of, of Christ and, and being a little bit more somber as we prepare for Christmas and prepare our hearts for Christmas. 
But I do have reason to celebrate today. <laughs> it is Grizzly Game Day. It's the FCS quarterfinals. There are eight teams left. The Grizzlies are one of them. And tonight in Missoula, the Montana Grizzlies play the Furman Paladins. And after this weekend, we will go from eight teams to four teams as we continue to play for the FCS National Championship. Um, so looking forward greatly to tonight ga tonight's game. Furman is not going to be a pushover. <laughs> as I said Monday, this is a rematch of the 2001 National Championship game, which the Grizz won 13-6. to um, so, you know, it's not going to be a pushover. We are going to uh, have a fight on our hands, but I am feeling confident that the Grizz will prevail. If they keep playing the way they've been playing, um, I'm, I'm just enjoying the season, and I want another game at home next week. <laughs> um, even though the... Uh, Extra weeks are, are costly as we have to pay for our tickets each week. Um, <laughs> the playoff tickets are not included in the season ticket package, although we do get first shot at buying our tickets. Um, Friday nights are not good for crowds at Washington Grizzly Stadium. Um, so we'll see. There's apparently a lot of tickets still available. So if you're in the area and you want to go to the Grizz game tonight, you know, contact the ticket office. You can probably get in. Kickoff is at 7. So looking forward to that. It's going to be on ESPN2. So you can search the crowd and look for your smiling squirrel. Um, I will be there. Trying not to cheer too loudly because I need to save my voice for Sunday because I'm preaching. So I will uh, try to sit quietly and cheer in my heart. I'll be making noise. You know I will be. All right. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, college football, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com and check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. All right. And indeed, most of everything that's over there is worth listening to. There's some show by a squirrel you might not want to listen to, but the rest of them are pretty good. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have a scripture reading. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Federalist Friday. So we are continuing to work our way through the Federalist Papers. Today is going to be another James Madison Federalist Paper. It's number 38 of the 85 Federalist Papers that we will be reading together today. All right. Sip of coffee. I'm still enjoying the Montana Coffee Traders Glacier Blend, which is their uh, vanilla 
flavored coffee. And as I've said before, I'm not big on flavored coffees. I, I, I prefer my coffee to taste like coffee. But, boy, I, li- I love this stuff. <laughs> and I've already got queued up a uh, bag of uh, Herb's House house roast, which will be going into my pot when uh, I finish this bag of, uh, of uh, Glacier Blend. So, all right. Let us begin, as is our practice, by reciting the Prayer of Confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, our scripture readings today are going to be um, Genesis chapter 5 and Psalm 5. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years. And he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived ninety years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived eight hundred and fifteen years after he became the father of Kenan, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were nine hundred and five years, and he died. And Kenan lived seventy years and became the father of Mahalael. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. 
So all the days of Mahalael were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. And then, then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now Psalm 5. For the choir director, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness I will enter your house. At your holy temple I will worship in fear of you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in my mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Today's devotional is Asking for God's Provision. 
Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew six eleven. Dr. MacArthur writes, Give reminds us of our need to ask God for his provision. In recognition of his past and present provision, we ask him and trust for his future furnishing of all our needs. We can ask confidently because God has richly promised, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Psalm 37, 4, and 11. God does not pledge to always meet the physical needs of everybody, but only of those who trust in him. In Psalm 37, 25, David is speaking about believers when he says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. It is clear that the us who can expect provision from the Father are believers. Paul echoes the same principle. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Second Corinthians nine ten and 11 with a cross-reference to Luke 18, 29, and 30. God mercifully supplies our needs daily, meaning simply our ordinary day-to-day provision of food, clothing, money, etc. The primary means by which we receive these things is through work. But isn't it the Lord who provides even the strength for that? To accept God's provision for today without undue concern for tomorrow is a testimony of our godly contentment, Matthew six twenty five, and Matthew six, thirty two and thirty three. Ask yourself: If the supply we have today isn't satisfying to us and doesn't seem like enough, is the problem with our supplier or with our own measure of demand? Pray for a humble willingness to be thankful for every blessing, without focusing on the ones. He seems to be withholding. All right. And it is Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. This is Federalist number 38, and the title is The Same Subject Continued and the Incoherence of Objections to the New Plan Exposed. Um, so remember, he is... Um, We started looking last week. Madison was taking us through the reasons for, you know, the the compromises and and, and the the reasons for the uh, way the Constitution is shaped. And he's continuing to, to deal with objections to it. And that is what we're looking at today. So... The same subject continued and the incoherence of the objections to the new plan exposed from the New York packet, Tuesday, January 15th, 1788, James Madison, to the people of the state of New York. It is not a little remarkable that in every case reported by ancient history in which government has been established with deliberation and consent, The task of framing it has not been committed to an assembly of men, but has been performed by some individual citizen 
of preeminent wisdom and approved integrity. Minos, we learn, was the primary founder of the government of Crete, and Zeleicus was that of the Locrations. Theseus, first and after him, Draco and Solon, instituted the government of Athens. Lycurgus was the governor of Sparta. The foundation of the original government of Rome was laid by Romulus, and the work completed by two of his elective successors, Numa and Tullius Hostilus. On the abolition of royalty, the consular administration was substituted by Brutus, who stepped forward with a project of, for such a reform, which, he alleged, had been prepared by Tullius Hostilus, and to which his address obtained the assent and ratification of the Senate and the people. This remark is applicable to Confederate governments also. Amphictyon, we are told, was the author of that which bore his name. The Achaean League received its first birth from Achaeus, and its second from Aratus. What degree of agency these reputed lawgivers might have in their respective establishments, or how far they might be clothed with the legitimate authority of the people, cannot in every instance be ascertained. In some, however, the proceeding was strictly regular. Draco appears to have been entrusted by the people of Athens with indefinite power to reform its government and laws. And Solon, according to Plutarch, was in a manner compelled by the universal suffrage of his fellow citizens to take upon him the sole and absolute power of new modeling the Constitution. The proceedings under Lycurgus were less regular, but as far as the advocates for a regular reform could prevail, they all turned their eyes toward the single, single efforts of that celebrated patron patriot and sage, instead of seeking to bring about a revolution by the invention of deliberative bodies of citizens. Whence could it have proceeded that a people, jealous as the Greeks were of their liberty, should so far abandon the rules of caution as to place their destiny in the hands of a single citizen? Whence could it have proceeded that the Athenians, a people who would not suffer an army to be commanded by fewer than ten generals, and who required no other proof of danger to their liberties than the illustrious merit of a fellow citizen, should consider one illustrious citizen as a more eligible depository of the fortunes of themselves and their posterity than a single body of citizens, from whose common deliberations more wisdom as well as more safety might have been expected. These questions cannot be fully answered without supposing that the fears of discord and disunion among a number of counselors exceeded the apprehension of treachery or incapacity of a single individual. History informs us, likewise, of the difficulties with which these celebrated reformers had to contend, as well as the expedients which they were obliged to employ in order to carry their reforms into effect. Solon, who seems to have indulged a more temporizing policy, confessed that he had not given to his countrymen the government best suited to their happiness, but most tolerable to their prejudices. And Lycurgus, more true to his object, was under the necessity of mixing a portion of violence 
with the authority of superstition and of securing his final succession, his final success by a voluntary renunciation, first of his country and then of his life. If these lessons teach us, on one hand, to admire the improvement made by America on the ancient mode of preparing and establishing regular plans of government, they serve not less, on the other, to admonish us of the hazards and difficulties incident to such experiments, and of the great imprudence of unnecessarily multiplying them. It is an unreasonable conjecture that the errors which may be contained in the plan of the convention are such as have resulted rather from the defect of antecedent experience on this complicated and difficult subject than from a want of accuracy or care in the investigation of it. And consequently, such as will not be ascertained until an actual trial shall have been pointed them out shall have pointed them out. This conjecture is rendered probable not only by many considerations of a general nature, but by the particular case of the Articles of Confederation. It is observable that among the numerous objections and amendments suggested by the several states, when these articles were submitted for their ratification, not one is found which alludes to the great and radical error which on actual trial has discovered itself. And if we accept the observations which New Jersey was led to make, rather by her local situation than by her peculiar foresight, it may be questioned whether a single suggestion was of sufficient moment to justify a revision of the system. There is abundant reason, nevertheless, to suppose that, immaterial as those objections were, they would have been adhered to with a very dangerous inflexibility in some states, had not a zeal for their opinions and supposed interests been stifled by the more powerful sentiment of self-preservation. One state, we may remember, persisted for several years in refusing her concurrence, although the enemy remained the whole period at our gates, or rather in the very bowels of our country. Nor was her pliancy in the end affected by a less motive than the fear of being chargeable with protracting the public calamities and endangering the event of the contest. Every candid reader will make the proper reflections on these important facts. A patient who finds his disorder daily growing worse and that an efficacious remedy can no longer be delayed without extreme danger, after coolly revolving his situation, and the character of different physicians, selects and calls in such of them as he judges most capable of administering relief and best entitled to his confidence. The physicians attend, the case of the patient is carefully examined, a consultation is held, they are unanimously agreed that the symptoms are critical, but that the case with proper and timely relief is so far from being desperate that it may be made to issue in an improvement of his constitution. They are equally unanimous in prescribing the remedy by which this happy effect is to be produced. The prescription is no sooner made known, however, than a number of persons interpose, and without denying the reality or danger of the disorder, assure the patient that the prescription will be poison to his constitution, and forbid him under pain of certain death 
to make use of it. Might not the patient reasonably demand, before he ventured to follow this advice, that the authors of it should at least agree among themselves on some other remedy to be substituted? And if he found them differing as much from one another as from his first counselors, would he not act prudently in trying the experiment unanimously recommended by the latter, rather than be hearkened to those who could neither deny the necessity of a speedy remedy nor agree in proposing one? Such a patient in such a situation is America at this moment. She has been sensible of her malady. She has obtained a regular and unanimous advice from men of her own deliberate choice, and she is warned by others against following this advice under pain of the most fatal consequences. Do the monitors deny the reality of her danger? No. Do they deny the necessity of some speedy and powerful remedy? No. Are they agreed? Are any two of them agreed in their objections to the remedy proposed or in their or in the proper one to be substituted? Let them speak to her themselves. This one tells us that the proposed constitution ought to be rejected because it is not a confederation of the states, but a government over individuals. Another admits that it ought to be a government over individuals to a certain extent, but by no means to the extent proposed. A third does not object to the government over individuals or to the extent proposed, but to the want of a Bill of Rights. A fourth concurs in the absolute necessity of a Bill of Rights, but contends that it ought to be declaratory, not of the personal rights of individuals, but of the rights preserved to the states in their political capacity. A fifth is of the opinion that a Bill of Rights of any sort would be superfluous and misplaced, and that the plan would be unexceptionable but for the fatal power of regulating the times and places of election. An objector in a large state exclaims loudly against the unreasonable equality of representation in the Senate. An objector in a small state is equally loud against the dangerous inequality in the House of Representatives. From this quarter, we are alarmed with the amazing expense from the number of persons who are to administer the new government. From another quarter, and sometimes from the same quarter, on another occasion the cry is that the Congress will be but a shadow of a representation, and that the government would be far less objectionable if the number and the expense were doubled. A patriot in a state that does not import or export discerns insuperable objections against the power of direct taxation. The patriotic adversary in a state of great exports and imports is not less dissatisfied that the whole burden of the taxes may be thrown on consumption. This politician discovers in the Constitution a direct and irresistible tendency to monarchy that is equally sure it will end in arist aristocracy. Another is puzzled to say which of these shapes it will ultimately assume but sees clearly that it must be one or the other of them, whilst a fourth is not wanting, who, with no less confidence, affirms that the Constitution is so far from having a bias toward either of these dangers that the weight on that side will not be sufficient to keep it upright and firm against its opposite propensities. 
with another class of adversaries to the Constitution. The language is that of the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments are intermixed in such a manner as to contradict all the ideas of regular government and all the, pre, all the requisite precautions in the favor of liberty. Whilst this objection circulates in vague and general expressions, there are but a few who lend their sanction to it. Let each one come forward with his particular explanation, and scarce any two are exactly agreed upon the subject. In the eyes of one, the junction of the Senate with the President in the responsible function of appointing to office, offices instead of vesting this executive power in the executive alone is the vicious part of the organization. To another, the exclusion of the House of Representatives, whose numbers alone could be a due security against corruption and partiality in the exercise of such power, is equally obnoxious. With another, the admission of the president into any share of a power which ever must be a dangerous engine in the hands of the executive magistrate is an unpardonable violation of the maxims of Republican jealousy. No part of the arrangement, according to them, is more inadmissible than the trial of impeachments by the Senate, which is alternately a member both of the legislative and executive departments, when this power so evidently belongs to the Judiciary Department. We concur fully, reply others, in the objection to this part of the plan, but we can never agree that a reference of impeachments to the Judiciary Authority would be an amendment of the error. Our principal dislike to the organization arises from the extensive powers already lodged in that department. Even among the zealous patrons of a Council of Senate our Council of State, the most irreconcilable variance is discovered concerning the mode in which it ought to be constituted. The demand of one gentleman is that the Council should consist of a small number to be appointed by the most numerous branch of the legislature. Another would prefer a larger number and considers it as a fundamental condition that the appointment should be made by the President himself. As it can give no umbrage to writers against the plan of the federal constitution, let us suppose that, as they are the most zealous, so they are also the most sagacious. Of those who think the late convention were unequal to the task assigned them, and that a wise and better plan might and ought to be substituted, let us further suppose that their country should concur, both in this favorable opinion of their merits and in their unfavorable opinion of the convention, and should accordingly proceed to form them into a second convention, with full powers and for the express purpose of revising and remolding the work of the first. Were the experiment to be seriously made, though it requires some effort to view it seriously even in fiction, I leave it to be decided by the sample of opinions just exhibited, whether, with all their enmity to their predecessors, they would at any one point depart so widely from their example as in the discord and ferment that would mark their own deliberations, and whether the Constitution, now before the public, would not stand as fair a chance for immortality as Lycurgus gave to that of Sparta. By making its, char its change to depend 
on his own return from exile and death, if it were to be immediately adopted and were to continue in force, not until a better, but until another should be agreed upon by this new assembly of lawgivers. It is a matter both of wonder and regret that those who raise so many objections against the new constitution should never call to mind the defects of that which is to be exchanged for it. It is not necessary that the former should be perfect. It is sufficient that the latter is more imperfect. No man would refuse to give brass for silver or gold because the latter had some alloy in it. No man would refuse to quit a shattered and tottering habitation for a firm and commodious building because the latter had not, had not a porch to it or because some of the rooms might be a little larger or smaller or the ceilings a little higher or lower than his fancy would have planned them. But waving illustrations of this sort, is it not manifest that most of the capital objections urged against the new system lie with tenfold weight against the existing confederation? Is an indefinite power to raise money dangerous in the hands of the federal government? The present Congress can make requisition to any amount they please, and the, and the states are constitutionally bound to furnish them. They can emit bills of credit as long as they will pay for the paper. They can borrow both abroad and at home as long as they as a shilling will be lent. It is, a, it is an indefinite power to raise troops dangerous. The Confederation gives to Congress that power also, and they have already begun to make use of it. Is it improper and unsafe to intermix the different powers of government in the same body of men? Congress, a single body of men, are the sole depository of all federal powers. Is it particularly dangerous to give the keys of the treasury and the command of the army into the same hands? The Confederation places them both in the hands of Congress. Is a Bill of Rights essential to liberty? The Confederation has no Bill of Rights. Is it an objection against the new Constitution that it empowers the Senate with the concurrence of the executive to make treaties which are to be the law of the land? The existing Congress, without any such control, can make treaties which they themselves have declared, and most of the states have recognized, to be the supreme law of the land. Is the importation of slaves permitted by the new Constitution for 20 years? By the old, it is permitted forever. I shall be told that however dangerous this mixture of powers may be in theory, it is rendered harmless by the dependence of Congress on the state for the means of carrying them into practice, that however large the mass of powers may be, it is, in fact, a lifeless mass. Then say I, in the first place, that the Confederation is chargeable with the still greater folly of declaring certain powers in the federal government to be absolutely necessary, and at the same time rendering them absolutely nugatory. And, in the next place, that if the Union is to continue and no better government be substituted, effective powers must either be granted to or assumed by the existing Congress, in either of which events the contrast just stated will hold good. But this is not all. Out of this lifeless mass has already grown an excrescent power, which tends to realize all the dangers that can be apprehended 
from a defective construction of the supreme government of the Union. It is now no longer a point of speculation and hope that the Western Territory is a mine of vast wealth to the United States, and although it is not of such a nature as to extricate them from their present distresses, or for some time to come to yield any regular supplies for the public expenses, yet must it hereafter be able, under proper management, both to effect a gradual discharge of the domestic debt and to furnish for a certain period liberal tributes to the federal treasury. A very large portion of this fund has been already surrendered by individual states, and it may with reason be expected that the remaining states will not persist in withholding similar proofs of their equity and generosity. We may calculate, therefore, that a rich and fertile country of an area equal to the inhabited extent of the United States will soon become a national stock. Congress have assumed the administration of this stock. They have begun to render it productive. Congress have undertaken to do more. They have proceeded to form new states, to erect temporary governments, to appoint officers for them, and to prescribe the conditions on which such states shall be admitted into the Confederacy. All this has been done, and done without the least color of constitutional authority. Yet no blame has been whispered, no alarm has been sounded. A great and independent fund of revenue is passing into the hands of a single body of men who can raise troops of an indefinite number and appropriate money to their support for an indefinite period of time. And yet there are men who have not only been silent spectators of this prospect, but who are advocates for the system which exhibits it, and at the same time urge against the new system the objectives which we have heard, objections which we have heard. Would they not act with more consistency in urging the establishment of the latter as no, as le no less necessary to guard the Union against the future powers and resources of a body constructed like the existing Congress, than to save it from the dangers threatened by the present imp impotency of that assembly. I mean not, by anything here said, to throw censure on the measures which have been pursue pursued by Congress. I am sensible they could not have been done otherwise. The public interest, the necessity of the case, impose, uh, imposed upon them the task of overleaping their constitutional limits. But is not the fact an alarming proof of the danger resulting from a government which does not possess regular powers commensurate to its objectives? Or dissolution or usurpation is the dreadful dilemma to which it is continually exposed? Publius. There's a lot there, not to mention several new vocabulary words. My apologies to ancient Greeks and Romans for the mispronunciation of your names. Let us now recite together our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the collect for the first Sunday in Advent. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us with great humility, and that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Colic for Endurance Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. And the Colic for the Unrepentant Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home, and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is the end of Squirrel Chatter for today and for this week. Um, uh, you know, go Grizz tonight, and uh, remember, I'm preaching this Sunday at Frenchtown Community Church in Frenchtown, Montana. That service begins at 10.30 a.m. Um, it is live-streamed on the uh, uh, church Facebook page, so just search for Frenchtown Community Church, Frenchtown, Montana, and uh, the live stream will be there this Sunday. I am preaching on peace, which is the theme of the second week of Advent. Um, all right, folks, have a great weekend. Go Grizz. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Go to church on Sunday. We'll see you here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.